the year 1194. Nobody could believe it, so she gave birth publicly. Welcome to Italy Inside Out. I'm your host, Andrea Aldrich. Sicily is a land of exceptional beauty and diversity. Its cultural tapestry has been created from the influences of the many centuries of foreign domination. On the previous episode of Italy Inside Out, my guest, Jack Linalio, historian and author, shared some of her knowledge of the history of Sicily during the Middle Ages, as well as more recent times. She has also done extensive research about the women of Sicily and their impact on the history of this region. And I am so pleased that she has agreed to join me again today to share her stories and insights into some of these women. Welcome, Jacqueline. How are you? Hi, Andre. I'm fine. It's great to be with you again and with your guests. The relationship between the women of myth and Sicily is very intriguing to me. I've often heard of the island being referred to as Persephone's Island. Will you tell us the story of Persephone? Yes, the legend, the myth of Persephone is very strong here. Um, And she's connected with a type of fruit that we still grow in Sicily and elsewhere in the Mediterranean, and and that's pomegranate. Okay, what we call in in Italy, melograno, pomegranate, pomegranate fruit. And the myth took place, according to the Greeks, Persephone, who, who was also known as Cori, she was the most perfect girl. She was the daughter of Demeter or Ceres for the Romans, okay, same goddess of agriculture and fertility. Uh, Persephone was a beautiful girl. She was beautiful and very young, and, and, and she one day she was in the central part of the island near uh, a lake, right by a lake called Pergusa, just below the cliff and mountain where there's the town of Enna, where her mother had uh, a temple, a Greek and then Roman temple. And while she was there, um, a chariot driven by horses came out of this lake. And who was there? It was the god of the underworld, Hades, who, by the way, was Persephone's uncle, because you may be aware of the fact of the fact that incest was common among the gods. And, <laughs> and so um, Persephone was uh, the niece of, of Hades. Well, he didn't know. He didn't know who she was. She was just beautiful. And he decided that he had to have a young and beautiful Persephone. So he took her away, swept her away, and brought her down to the world of the dead. Persephone wanted her mother. She wanted to go back home. She was just a young, a young girl. Um, she had never been so far away from home. But Hades wanted to marry Persephone. And so he kept her there. He tried to convince her to eat uh, and drink and accept his love for her. In fact, still today in Greek culture and in Sicilian culture, of course, accepting something to eat or drink when you're a guest over somebody's house means that you accept them. You accept their friendship or their love. And if you don't accept anything, it's, it's really a slap on the face. And that's what Persephone was trying to do. 
She didn't want to stay in the underworld. She wanted to go back to her mother. Well, nobody knew where she was, but her mother back about Mount Olympus started to search for Persephone high and low. She was desperate. Months passed, years passed. Famine took place in the world because Demeter, the goddess of agriculture, was so sad and distraught for the loss of her daughter that she wouldn't allow anything to grow. I could imagine Hades, who was very happy because all these souls were coming into the world of the dead. They were all dying of famine. Well, uh, to make a long story short, okay, um, and at a certain point, Persephone, who had refused to eat or drink for all that time, she was so hungry and she saw a pomegranate tree growing in the garden um, down in the world of, of the dead. And little did she know that Hades had the gardener spying on Persephone to see if Persephone would eat of the fruit of the tree. She did. Those red little fruits inside the pomegranate. Um, some say that she ate six of those uh, fruits inside, little seeds, okay, the red seeds. Some say that it was just enough for her destiny, her destiny to be with Hades in the underworld, uh, to, for her destiny to be, let's say, chosen uh, unknowingly by her. So for six months during a year, Persephone has to stay in the world of the dead. From fall all the way through winter. Um, in springtime, she's allowed to go back to her mother, okay? Because her mother finally did find her with help from Hermes, the god of the messenger and, and diplomat of the gods. Persephone was found, but not in time because she had eaten some of those fruits. So that's why the pomegranate tree is considered the fruit of love, but it's also considered uh, the fruit of fertility. Because in springtime, Persephone comes back to the world of the living and um, Demeter allows everything to grow again. Okay, so these were the Ketonic goddesses, the goddesses, mother and daughter, who um, decided on life and death because they allowed fertility and life, but also the end of life in all living things. And they were very much venerated, actually worshipped in ancient Sicily. That's interesting. Um, and then there's Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. We need to hear about her, I think. Well, Aphrodite, also known as Venus by the Romans. Um, and, you know, in Sicily, like in some parts of North, North Africa and, and Greece, in the Mediterranean, back in, in the time of the Romans and, and then the Greeks and, and also the Phoenicians. Here in Sicily, Aphrodite is worshipped in a special way. Okay, so obviously she represents love and fertility, no, no doubt. But uh, when we talk about Aphrodite in Sicily, the first place that comes to mind is a town called Erice. Erice had a temple in very ancient times pre-Greek times, some say, that was dedicated to the goddess of love, uh, who, by the way, the Phoenicians called Astarte, the Greeks Aphrodite, and the Romans Venus. But there was a special way of worshiping this goddess. I, um, it, it might sound a, li a little scandalous, but up in Erice, um, there was sacred prostitution going on. 
um, the Romans write about this. They explain how there were a hundred priestesses in the temple of Venus or Aphrodite in Edice, and how men arrived from all over the Mediterranean. How did they know the goddess was always looking over them? Uh, because there was a type of beacon, a, a type of lighthouse up in the temple, um, a light that, that would shine day and night. And that's why so many sailors and merchants took the goddess of love as their own divinity, um, not just in Sicily, but throughout the Mediterranean. So throughout the year, but in particular during the month of August, uh, men would ar arrive with offerings to the goddess. Uh, but besides the goods that they would bring as offerings, they brought themselves because the ancient Greeks and, and Romans um, here in Sicily, the Romans sort of accepted this, this uh, type of worship. They thought it was pretty cool, right? <laughs> they, it, the uh, Greeks and the Romans and, and the Phoenicians felt that it was through sexual intercourse that the goddess of love, Aphrodite, was truly pleased. And this would bring on not just fertility, but prosperity to the lives of the people involved uh, with this act of love. So it was a special type of worship. It was very difficult later, much later, for um, Christianity to destroy this type of worship on the island. In fact, that section of Sicily, Western Sicily, Tropani, Marsala, and Edice, it, it wasn't until the 7th century AD, or current era, that Christianity, Christianity fin finally fully spread on that side of the island. Well, elsewhere in Sicily, it spread quite quickly. Uh, St. Paul was here. He was in Syracuse on the eastern side. And then we had some early Christian martyrs in Sicily, such as Agatha and Lucy. Okay, well then, that's a good segue to talk about St. Agatha, who has a rather gruesome and tragic story, I must say. Well, Agatha, um, we know that both Agatha and Lucy truly lived. They're not made up saints. Uh, Agatha was, again, a young and beautiful girl from the city of Catania. That's the second largest city in Sicily on the eastern side of the island. And back then, it was uh, just after the Greek times. The, it was the early Roman period. So Agatha lived uh, during the third century BC or BCE, and she converted to Christianity. It was a strong conversion. Uh, she didn't just decide to come to be baptized and follow you know, the new Christian faith, but she became what in the early church um, existed. Uh, something that, that I want to mention is that in the early church, women were allowed to be deaconesses. Agatha was a deaconess. That meant that as a woman, uh, she could baptize other people, uh, mostly uh, women and children or the elderly, because the women in the early church cared for women and children and the elderly. They would baptize them as deaconesses, as a deaconess. She also, uh, you know, she would do perform different, different. Um, she had different roles as a as a deaconess. So she truly believed in Jesus, but she was unwed. She had decided to consecrate her life to Jesus, like a consecrated virgin. And a new Roman governor happened to arrive in Catania during the time of Diocletian. This governor started to lust over 
Agatha. It was around the year 250 BC. Uh, she refused his advances. He decided to try to bend her will by putting in her, in, her into a temple dedicated to the goddess Venus, where sacred prostitution took place. Okay, so apparently this, this, this form of worship to Venus was quite popular in Sicily, as I mentioned earlier. She fled the temple. She ended up in Malta for a while. The island of Malta uh, today, um, the patron saint of Malta is Agatha, Saint Agatha from Sicily. Then she left. She ended up in Palermo. That's why she's co-patron of Palermo. But then she decided to face, face up to her persecutor, to the new governor in Catania. She went back home. Um, and again, she refused him. And so he decided to punish her terribly. And that's when the famous punishment took place. One of her breasts was pulled off. That night in prison, she didn't die because Agatha said that St. Peter appeared to her in, in the prison and healed her. The next day, she, she was fine. Yeah, she had one less breast, but she was fine. And that got the governor even angrier. So he, again, he decided to um, make an example of her for other Christians. He had her put on a bed of hot coals, and that's how she died. She died on the 5th of February of 251 uh, BC. Well, in, in the city of Catania, she is the main patron saint. Now, what's the connection with her and Catania? It's the hot coals and the, the, the hot lava because Catania ha has Mount Etna nearby. The people of Catania over the millennia uh, over and over again, they, they feel that they have been spared by Mount Etna's lava, thanks to St. Agatha, okay, to prayers to her, to their devotion to St. Agatha. Every year in February, there's a 48-hour procession dedicated to her, but the sweetest part are the delicious desserts that are prepared for Agatha in her honor. They're called imini di Sant'Agata. Mini in Sicilian means breast, women's breast. And these desserts have the form of a breast, a white mound uh, with a maraschino cherry on top. Okay, And they represent Agatha's breast. So that's the devotion to St. Agatha in Catania, her hometown. That's fascinating. Um, then there's St. Lucy. And this is an interesting story to me because there's an unusual connection to Sweden involved in this. So would you tell us about that, please? Something that uh, you, if you look carefully, you'll notice that Sicily and its culture somehow has spread elsewhere. And um, Lucy is an example of this. St. Lucy, Lu Lucia, uh, as we call her, and that's how they call her in Sweden too. In um, Lutheran Sweden, Lucia or Lucy is venerated. It's, it's amazing, okay? But Lucia or Lucy came from Syracuse. And she came from a wealthy family of Greek descent during the Roman times. And she was a promised bride. She was actually betrothed to, to a young man. Uh, but then one day, um, Lucy had a conversion. She converted to Christianity. And nobody could understand her. She wanted to sell her dowry 
and give it to the poor. She wanted to be a good Christian and help others. She would talk to everybody about Jesus. And this became an issue with her family, who was very much upset at what she had done, not to mention her fiancé. Her mother was convinced of Lucy's beliefs because one day she and Lucy went on pilgrimage to Catania, to uh, the tomb of St. Agatha. Um, Lucy lived uh, until the year 304, um, actually, excuse me, uh, 204 BC. She, she, she lived about 50 years after, uh, she was living 50 years after Agatha had died. And, and so people would go on pilgrimage to Agatha's tomb in Catania. She went there with her mother and her mother converted to Christianity too, after learning about St. Agatha. But the issue was Lucy's fiance, who was angry. He was angry because, because Lucia was a beautiful girl, but also because she was wealthy, okay? So he was gonna lose out on a lot of things. So after trying to convince um, Lucy to marry him in any case, um, and here's, here's the legend in the story, okay? Uh, Lucy, Lucia, the name Lucia comes from Lux in Latin, which means light, okay, the light of her eyes, that's the idea, the light of your soul is visible from your eyes, some people say, and, and, and her fiancé, at a certain point, trying to convince Lucia, told her, but Lucia, you're so beautiful, you have such beautiful eyes, that you're, you make me go crazy, and this is the legend, she said, well, if this is the problem, you could have them. And she pulled them out and gave them to him. But, and new eyes appeared. That was the miracle. But this is the legend, okay? Uh, this is the legendary part. Going back to history, her fiancé called in the Romans and said, arrest Lucia. She's a Christian. She was arrested. She, they tried to torture her. All kinds of events took place. Uh, they couldn't tow her away, uh, not even with... Uh, dragging dragging her with a wagon pulled by oxen, and they couldn't uh, light a, a fire and burn her at the stake. The, the fire wouldn't start. So in the end, um, Lucia had a very quick death. She was she she was killed in 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 the neck with a dagger, and that's why much later in 1610, Caravaggio, who was in Syracuse painted the burial of Lucia, of St. Lucy, um, and you see the dead corpse of Lucia, this girl uh, being made ready for burial, and you can see the wound on the neck uh, of the dagger that killed her. So she had a very quick and speedy death, but she became very popular. And today she is, we can say, the most famous saint of and from Sicily, almost like a patron of the island, besides the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, the 13th of December is her feast. That's considered the day she was killed. Um, and on the 13th of December, in almost every town and city in Sicily, nobody eats flour, okay? They, they don't eat baked bread or pasta. And this is connected to an event that happened much, much later. Um, in the 1600s, 17th century, there was a famine going on. This happened, these events, famines happened many times in Sicily and elsewhere in the Mediterranean and in the world, that's for sure. But in, it happened in Lucia's hometown. 
And on the day of St. Lucie's uh, celebration, her feast day, the 13th of December, a cargo, um, a ship arrived with its cargo filled with wheat. People were so hungry that they just boiled the wheat berries and they made a porridge with it. So they didn't use any flour. So this is a devotion uh, that has, has spread throughout Sicily. What's the connection with Sweden? How did she end up there? That's a good question. But first I should say that Lucia, St. Lucy's body ended up in Venice. And that happened when the Muslims took over Sicily to protect uh, Lucia's body. The Byzantines from Constantinople came in. They took her body away from Syracuse and brought it to Venice. Okay, uh, Venice that had connections with Byzantium for a while. Um, and, and in fact, it, so it ended up in up in the north. In fact, there's a very strong devotion in different parts of northern Italy for St. Lucy, and probably from Venice, this devotion ended up in Sweden. As for her body parts, okay, you know how it is in the Roman Catholic Church, um, that the people of Syracuse uh, wanted her body back, even in more recent years. But we only ended up with the bone of a forearm. Okay. Even though two years, three years ago, uh, her body uh, came was brought from Venice to Syracuse just for a few days during one of the celebrations for St. Lucy. But it, there's a very strong devotion for St. Lucy. And people pray if they have problems with their eyes, they pray Lucy for help. So don't forget about the girl from Sweden. I really want to hear about that. <laughs> the girl from Sweden. Um, the girl from Sweden. Every year in Sweden, there's a competition, a kind of pageant, um, in which a young girl, um, a young teenager, um, is chosen as um, to represent St. Lucy. Uh, she's uh, St. Lucia. And, and on the 13th of December, which used to be the shortest day of the year until the calendar changed, on the 13th of December, there's uh, people wake up in Sweden early in the morning, parents prepare a saffron bread called Lucia bread. And then there's a, um, um, a type of procession um, it, that's led by the girl that was elected that year to represent St. Lucy. Uh, she has a wreath with candles on her head and she's holding a candle all dressed in white. She represents St. Lucy lighting the way out of the dark towards God. That's the idea. And there's a whole procession of young children, boys and girls, first the girls, then also some boys in the back, leading the procession for Lucia Day. Uh, it's a beautiful connection. And, and many times over, we've had these exchanges um, with, with uh, the St. Lucy, the girl um, elected as uh, the Lucia the, 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 for St. Lucy's Day, coming over to Syracuse um, the year, the next year. So there's a connection still today, Sweden and Sicily. I guess the only connection is the S and St. Lucy, <laughs> the beginning of the name, I don't know, <laughs> Sicily and Sweden. That's really fascinating. There are a few queens that you have researched that had some lasting influences and were uh, pretty much outstanding women in their own right. Could you tell us a little bit about those women? So we had had a number of queens during the Norman 
and Norman Swabian age. Um, so particularly from the late 11th century until the first part of the 13th century, uh, quite a few such as Judith of Evreux, Ad Queen Adelaide, um, and many more. But the ones I wanted to center on are three. Uh, in chronological order, the first one was a woman by the name of Margaret. Margaret started out as Margaret, a princess known as Margaret of Navarra, Navarra in northeastern Spain, from the town of Pamplona, uh, Pamplona, where many years ago in the 1920s, Ernest Hemingway based his novel, The Sun, um, Fiesta, the Sun Also, uh, The Sun Always Rises. Okay, The Running of the Bulls. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And Margaret came from there during the first half. She was born during the first half of the uh, 12th century. Her father was a king called King um, Garcia Ramirez of Navarre and Pamplona. And um, Garcia Ramirez of Navarre and Pamplona was a grandson of El Cid. Remember many years ago, there was a movie with Charlton Heston, El Cid, okay, who, who ended up dying in Valencia. Okay, I was in Valencia last year. Um, anyway, and, and so Margaret was the great-granddaughter of El Cid. But on, on her mother's side, she was not Spanish. She was Norman, because her mother came from Normandy. And they were related. The Norman part of family was, was a family friend. They were related with friends of... Thomas Beckett from Canterbury in England, who ended up as Archbishop of Canterbury. So it was a very interesting family. Margaret, at the age of 15, married um, the King of Sicily, a young man by the name of William I. He was the son of King Roger II, who I spoke about him in our last interview. Roger II was the king, the Norman king who headed the golden age of Sicily. Um, he, uh, he established a, a constitution in 1140, protecting religious liberties, making rape a crime, and many other interesting uh, laws for the kingdom of Sicily. So his son, uh, next in line to rule, was William I, who had married Margaret. They had four children together, who we know of, and Margaret and William um, had had a, quite a few years together until William passed away in 1166. At that point, the, the child of Margaret and William, who was next in line to rule, was William II. He was only 12, 12 and a half. So he could not rule the kingdom of Sicily. For five whole years, Margaret became queen regent. I wanted to mention something. In Sicily, under the Normans, and uh, for a couple of centuries, we had something called Sicilian female succession. If there was no male heir next in line, a woman could have become either regent, this was the case of Margaret, regent in the name of her son, or regent if there was no child. Okay, so this is something peculiar. Um, so Margaret became regent for five years until William reached the age of 17. In the meantime, Margaret signed decrees. She uh, signed charters. She protected the kingdom of Sicily 
making it strong, keeping it strong for her son, uh, for William, who was always next to her, always helping out. Um, and she also founded some churches, convents, monasteries, some of which stand still today. So she was quite an inspiration for her son, William II. When William was just 15, um, he and his mother, Margaret, traveled to Catania after an earthquake had happened, uh, apparently a bad, really bad earthquake back then. And Margaret went to give support to her subjects. Well, William went up at the age of 15 and he made his first public speech. And this gives us, it, it sort of gives us a lot of information of what type of character William had, but also the mother who raised him because he told his subjects, um, um, it doesn't matter if you pray to Jesus Christ or to Allah, as long as you pray, I promise you will find support in this moment of trouble. And, and, and so Margaret, two years later, Margaret stepped back to allow her son to rule on his own, but she was there in the background when the cathedral and abbey of Monreale near Palermo were started, Margaret gave support to her son and she probably gave him a lot of advice. Um, I could talk about Margaret for hours. Uh, she had to make a lot of decisions. I just wanted to mention that there were moments when she was regent in which she had to decide if somebody had to live or die because a few people committed treason when she was ruling as regent. And so to protect her kingdom and her son, who the future king, she had to make, to make a few really tough decisions. I know you have a lot of information about her enough that you wrote a whole book. So that, I'm sure we could go on a long time, but maybe we should move on to the next one that you'd like to talk about. Sure. The next one would be um, Queen, um, Queen Joanna. And Joanna um, moved to Sicily as a very young girl. She, she came from England. Joanna was uh, a Plantagenet and she was the daughter of Henry II and of Eleanor d'Aquitaine. So she was the youngest sister of Richard the Lionheart. Joanna was only, um, only 11 when she married uh, young William II, who was a little older than her. William II was 22, Joanna was 11. I know it was a, an arranged marriage back then for political reasons. And she traveled, um, she left her parents in England, and she traveled all the way to Sicily to marry William II. Um, they got married in Palermo at the Palatine Chapel in 1177, because at the time, Monreale Cathedral and Palermo Cathedral were under construction. But years passed, and Joanna and William didn't have any kids. And then a sad tragedy happened. William was only 36 years old, Joanna was 24, and William dies, airless. Joanna stayed in Sicily for a while. Her brother, Richard the Lionheart, came to Sicily. Uh, he held the city of Messina under siege to get back Joanna's dowry and his sister back to take her back to England. And eventually this worked out, but the people of Sicily were hoping to keep Joanna and marry her off to some other prince. 
so that she could remain as queen. But that never happened. If she had had a child by William, Joanna would have become queen regent. So Joanna went back to England. Um, the queen of Sicily went back to England. She eventually remarried. She had children with um, Raymond of Toulouse. And, and, and then I sometimes call her a she-wolf because when her brother was killed during during a hunt by crossbow fire, her brother Richard the Lionheart, um, before passing away, Richard um, forgave the the man who had hit him by mistake um, with by crossbow fire. But after her her brother died, Joanna had this um, man pulled out of prison, tortured and killed. Uh, yeah, to get revenge, vendetta for her brother. And that killed her too, because she was pregnant with her last child. She had a very difficult birth um, for, for her child. And the child, uh, and then she died from complications after this. And then the last lady uh, is Constance. Queen Constance was a daughter of Roger II. Now I'll remind you, the King of Sicily, William II, who had married Joanna, had died heirless. So there was nobody, no male heir next in line. However, his aunt Constance, daughter of Roger II, uh, was next in line, even though she was a woman. It's just that she was not living in Sicily when these tragic events happened, when her nephew, the king, died. She was up in Germany. Jo Constance daughter of Roger, had married a young man, a prince from Germany, who ended up becoming king and Holy Roman Emperor. I'm talking about the son of Barbarossa, Frederick Barbarossa, up in Germany and northern Italy. His son's name was Henry, Henry of Swabia. It didn't matter that Constance was 10 years older than Henry. She was 36. He was 26. They got married just the same because she was a possible heiress of the kingdom of Sicily. And Frederick Barbarossa many times had tried to take over the kingdom with warfare. It didn't work. This time he had a chance. You know, he was thinking, how about if the king of Sicily would have died without an heir? If my son is married to the heiress, I've got everything. I've got the kingdom. He didn't, he didn't live to see this happen because it happened just a few years after Barbarossa died, but his, uh, he was like, um, he had seen the future. Henry and Constance became, they were the Holy Roman Emperor and Empress, they became King and Queen of Sicily and Southern Italy too. And this happened in, 11, uh, in 1189 after William II died. It was not easy getting the kingdom. Henry, II, Henry of Swabia, excuse me, had to come here with an army, but he was able to get the kingdom for his wife. And believe it or not, even though Constance was almost 41 years old, she had a baby. She had a child. Now we're talking about the Middle Ages, the year 1194. Nobody could believe it. So she gave birth publicly. And she gave birth to a little red-haired boy who became known as Frederick II. Sometime after his mother died, Frederick II became king and emperor. So that story has always fascinated me. And that was in Le Marche, right? Where she gave birth? Le Marche in the little town of Yesi with everybody watching right. in the main public square in a tent a, during the winter. It's amazing. 
There's a story that I read in your book about um, a woman who lived during the time of the Inquisition. And her name is Catherine de Monteverde. And she was a converted Jew. So I would love for you to tell us that story. So the story of Caterina de Monteverde that I included in my book, Women of Sicily, Saints, Queens, and Rebels. She's one of the rebels, of course. Um, this this is a it's an inspiring story, and it's the only story that I was able to find about uh, Jews, a Jewish woman who had converted, and she was still trying to keep some of she had converted to the Catholic Church during the Inquisition, but she was still trying to keep her Jewish traditions. The only story I was able to find that had enough information to write a chapter about. Caterina, uh, the story that we know about Caterina is that she came from a town in Western Sicily called Mazzara del Vallo, not far from Marsala, where the wine comes from. She and her husband, Pietro, were, um, had, had both been Jews and they converted choosing Christian names. The, the name Pietro, which means Peter, and the name Caterina were very common names that the Jews who converted would adopt. The, the last name, the uh, Monteverdi, could have been the name of Caterina's um, god, one of the godparents, okay? Because the Jews would sometimes have, um, they would have other Christians, uh, Catholics, supporting them uh, when they were being baptized, and they would become their godparents. So they would choose a Christian name. They changed life completely. At least that was the idea. So Caterina and Pietro had changed life. Well, at least apparently. Caterina had an issue, though, with changing her traditions. She would still eat kosher. She wouldn't eat pork. She wouldn't eat starlings. Um, she would, would, would not do her laundry on a Saturday. Um, she would prefer a Sunday, okay, when Christians weren't working in those days. Then um, her, her husband tried to convince Caterina many times, because if you were to visit Mazzara del Vallo today, the Casba, um, you would see that the houses were very close. There was no secret. Uh, at the most, you might have had a little, a little alleyway or a courtyard between your house and your neighbor's house. So Caterina had very curious neighbors. They wouldn't mind their own business. And some of these neighbors were women who probably had also converted um, from you know, Judaism to, to Christianity. And they were jealous that Caterina was still, still there trying to keep her Jewish ways. So people, uh, these women, a few of these women went to the church, uh, the ecclesiastical uh, tribune. Uh, so fortunately, they didn't go to the Inquisition tribunal, but to the local church tribunal. And they said that Caterina and her husband were still Jews, practicing Jews. So they were arrested. If it took about two years. Uh, but in the end, the wonderful thing about this story is that Caterina and Pietro, her husband, were set free because the women who were testifying against this couple uh, were declared unreliable. So they ended up living the rest of their life as regular people in, in the Casba of Manzara del Vallo. Hmm. You were uh, telling me about um, 
a somewhat of a heroine in the time of the mafiosa. And I'd really like you to tell us the story about her and and what she did. Yes, I was telling you the story of a girl by the name of Rita Atria. Um, just yesterday, we commemorated her life and her death because this girl who who committed suicide on the 26th of July of 1992, she was just 17 years old. This girl was full of courage. Rita Atria grew up in a little town near Palermo um, in, on the Western side, going towards the airport. And she was the daughter and the sister of mafiosi, of dons of a little town uh, near Palermo. But Rita, over the years, even though she was young, she was just a teenager, she realized that that type of life, living in a family uh, that, that was part of the mafia, was not for her. She, she didn't believe in that type of life. And she met up with Judge Paolo Borsellino, who was one of the two judges who were blown up in the summer of 1992 in Palermo. And Borsellino put Rita under his protection because she became, she decided to become a police collaborator. When her family found out, uh, her mother who was still alive um, and the rest of her family, they um, declared her dead. They said, she, Rita, you, you don't exist for us anymore. We don't want to see you ever again. So Rita was put under protection by Judge Paolo Borsellino. She was not um, safe in Sicily. So Paolo Borsellino, who would often go to Rome to work, um, had her put up in an apartment in Rome under police protection. And Rita kept a diary. She kept a diary and she, some of her, some of what she wrote has become an example to follow in, in the fight against the mafia. For example, one of the things that she said is maybe an honest world doesn't exist, but who, who can stop us from dreaming? If each and every one of us would try to change things, maybe we'll make it. This was one of her lines. But the saddest line in her diary was uh, just uh, about a week after Paolo Borsellino was blown up in Palermo. Rita felt that there was nobody who was going to protect her anymore and nobody was gonna fight with her against the mafia. She felt this gigantic world uh, filled that was filled with the mafia, her homeland, Sicily, that, and she felt alone. Okay, she felt alone in this. And so she, she said, now that Borsellino's dead, um, nobody could understand the emptiness that his death has left in me. Um, it looks like um, all those who are fighting against the mafia are, are, are just living in a fantasy, trying to fight against windmills that you can't stop because the wind's too strong, right? And I'm sorry, now that Borsellino is dead, I'm dead too. And that same day that she wrote this in her diary, she jumped out of the eighth floor of her apartment. She was not yet 18, she was just 17 and a half. So today there's an association, a special club called the Rita Atria Club, um, that's run by women. And the idea is to try to help young people all over Italy 
um, in different mafia situations, because the mafia is not just in Sicily. It, there's the Camorra in Naples, there's the Andragnata in Calabria and so forth. And the Rita Atri Association tries to help people to find courage in fighting against the mafia, especially young people. That's a that's a really poignant story. I could listen to you talking about these women for hours, but of course we don't have hours. But I wanted to say one more thing. I think that your affinity for these women, saints, queens, and rebels, which is the name of your book, came from your mother. Because in the front, you dedicate this to your mother, the first woman to wear trousers in her hometown in rural Sicily, who taught me about love and courage. Jacqueline, what is your mother's name? You don't say her name here. So my mom, everybody calls her Tina, but her name is Vita. So when she was little, they would call her Vitina, little, which means little life. Vita means life. And, and so she, everybody ended up calling her Tina. She sounds like quite an inspiration. I'd love to meet her someday. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. This is a fascinating look at the women, the myth and legend, and their influence on the history of Sicily. If anyone wants to read this book, though the one I was just mentioning, or any of the others of Jacqueline's books, I'll put that information in the show notes. And also, uh, we mentioned it last week, but I'll say tell you again that Jacqueline and her sister have formed a tour company of Sicily. The name is Alio Tours. Is that right? And that information and the contact information will also be in the show notes. So thank you again so much, Jacqueline. Um, I hope to see you soon. But until then, Arrivederci. Arrivederci, Andrea. See you soon. Well, that's it for this episode of Italy Inside Out. This podcast is sponsored by Travel in Italia, leading small group tours on the mainland and islands of Italy. You can find more information at www.travelinitalia.com. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to this podcast. And until next time, arrivederci. Music